Friends, let's open in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. We began last week a new series on Hebrews. We studied the first four verses, and I want to pick up from there and look at the final half of this chapter, chapter 1. So we're going to begin in verse 5, but actually I want to reach back and read the tail end of the sentence we studied last week. And so I'm going to begin in verse 4. Speaking of Jesus, hear now God's word. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, When he says to the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions." And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let's pray together. Jesus, if this is true, if your angels really are ministering spirits sent out to those who inherit salvation, would you apply that ministry to us today? Would you allow them to do their work in our lives? Would you work in our lives to give us a bigger vision of you? This morning, through your word, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, you heard the passage. We're going to be talking about angels today in Hebrews chapter 1, and I just want to give you guys a heads up that most of what I know about angels, I've learned from the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. That's kind of where I get the basis for a lot of my thoughts on angels. I know about their pecking order. I know that some angels have really, really hard jobs. I know how angels got their wings. I know a lot of things from the great Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life. I can tell by the blank stares that almost nobody has seen that movie, but that's okay. Um, But I never realized that Hebrews is actually the source material for this movie. This movie tells the story of a gardening angel who comes in human form, and he's got to help George Bailey um, arrive at serenity, I guess. Um, But in that movie, the source material is from Hebrews because the two major tenets of angeology, that is the study of angels in the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, come from the book of Hebrews. Number one, in chapter one, that angels are in some way like guardian angels. They somehow assist us in our lives in very real and practical ways. And secondly, comes from Hebrews chapter 13, which says that angels can appear in human form that there's a way in which we might be entertaining angels unaware, that we might uh, see them, but they come to us in human form. Everything else in those movies is pure speculation. But we're getting ahead of ourselves here. We're talking about angels, and it's good to ask, why on earth are we talking about angels? We just got done this magnificent sentence in the opening of Hebrews. It's four verses, and it reminds us that Jesus is the prophet and the priest and the king. He's the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
If that's true, why would we pause in verse 4 to make the point that Jesus is superior to the angels? What does that have to do with what we've been talking about? That's kind of like reading off Steph Curry's stats for the year and then going on to belabor the point that he's a better basketball player than anybody in this room. That's already clear to all of us. Why would we belabor the point? I mean, who's asking? Well, Apparently, the church that the writer to the Hebrews is addressing is asking those very questions. They're confused about the relationship between Jesus and the angels. That might not be a confusion that we share, but that's only because of our vantage point to Jesus as compared to theirs. Think about this church who is standing maybe 30 years outside the resurrection of Jesus. They're brand new believers and the church has not done much thinking and praying over who Jesus is and how to articulate the person that he is. But we as the church today, we have a vantage point that is much bigger than theirs. I mean, think about the advantage we have over this church. We have the New Testament canon. We can pick up our closed New Testament canon and read about the person of Jesus. We have the Apostles' Creed, which we share today. We have the church councils. We have the early church fathers. We have 2,000 years worth of Christian thought that has been forged in the crucible of 2,000 years worth of history and mission. We've got an enormous advantage of understanding Jesus over this church. I say all that to remind us to get off our Christological high horse here. I mean, we all might know about the hypostatic union of Christ that was articulated in the Council of Chalcedon in 451, that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, and that those natures do no violence to each other. We know these things today, but the church in Hebrews' day, they're still sorting these pieces of Christology out. It's easy for us to forget that we know that Jesus is superior to the angels because we've had the book of Hebrews all the while, which has told us that Jesus is superior to the angels. That's not crystal clear to the church in the writer's day for a couple of reasons. I think one of the reasons it's not clear of the relationship between Jesus and angels is because angels are pretty awesome. I mean, they do some incredible things. In the Old Testament, we have wonderful stories of angels. And so in first century Israel, there was a fascination about, is, uh, about angels, much as there is today a fascination about angels. And in fact, some people worshiped angels or at least thought that Jesus was a kind of angel. He's kind of a super spiritual being. So the one reason that there's confusion is that angels are pretty incredible. The second reason, I think, is because Jesus could appear less than incredible. I mean, from their vantage point, Jesus was born in a barn and he died on a cross. Even the writer to the Hebrews in the second chapter is going to say in verse 9, for a little while, Jesus was made lower than the angels. He appeared to all of us as one who was less than the angels themselves. And so in this chapter, Hebrews chapter 1, you have a true throwdown between Jesus and the angels. They're pitted against each other, not because they're at war with each other, but because we have pitted them against each other. And the writer to the Hebrews deals with this battle by coming out swinging from the Psalms. That's what he does. The writer to the Hebrews is copious with his scripture quotes. He's already just now given us seven direct quotes from scripture. Five of those are from the Psalms. Now I want you to get this. 
write it to the Hebrews. He's going to write 13 chapters. He is going to quote or allude to the Psalms over 50 times in this short letter. We know that the Psalms become the most highly trafficked Old Testament book in the New Testament. Over the course of the New Testament, the Psalms will be quoted or alluded to over 400 times. I think the great theologian Augustine understood this when he wrote Confessions because almost every single page of that book either quotes or alludes to the Psalms. Augustine, when he spoke of reading the Psalms, he said it was like being set on fire. When's the last time you described your quiet time like that? (laughs) When's the last time somebody asked you about your devotions and you said, you know, I flipped through a few Bible apps and it felt like I was set on fire? I mean, it was incredible. We don't use that language, and I don't say that to embarrass us. I say that to inspire us. Here you have the writer to the Hebrews, who is absolutely brilliant in his own right. He's artistic, he's visionary, he's brilliant. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And when he comes head to head with an extremely delicate theological issue that has all kinds of practical implications for the church, do you know what this brilliant man says? He says, look, I'm in way over my head. I need to open the book of Psalms. If that's what the writer to the Hebrews is doing, how can you and I do any less than that, right? How can we not also mind the depths of the Psalms and all of Scripture? And so from Psalms, from Deuteronomy, from 2 Samuel, the writer to the Hebrews, he begins to build this world in which we understand the relationship between Jesus and angels. And here's how he does it. He shows us Jesus' unique relationship with God and with the world and with angels themselves. These are three spheres in which we learn about Jesus' unique relationship to God and to the world and to angels themselves. Let's look at each of those just very briefly in turn. Number one, Jesus' unique relationship to God. We start with how he relates to God to understand how he relates to the rest of the world. Things are said about Jesus in this chapter that cannot possibly be said about anything or anyone in all of creation. For example, look at verse 8. Quoting from Psalm 45, the writer says, But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So you see here the son, Jesus, he's being addressed as God. He has the attributes of God and he is assuming the throne of God. But then he goes on and continues to quote Psalm 45 in verse 9 where he says, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now hang on to your seat because this is where some of the confusion for the Hebrews comes in, I think. Jesus is God. Jesus is anointed by God, and this is all for the mutual gladness of God. Did you catch that? Jesus is God himself. Jesus is anointed by God. Jesus is anointed by God for the mutual gladness of God. We're getting exposed to the Trinity. One God in three persons upon whom, among whom this mutual glory dwells. I love how John Piper says this in Desiring God when he writes, 
In creation, God went public with the glory that reverberates joyfully between the Father and the Son. There's a glory and a joy that exists in one God in three persons that reverberates between himself for all eternity past, and creation was just an excuse to share that with the world. We behold the glory of a triune God. Jesus' relationship to God is utterly unique And it is different from anything in the world that's been created. Well, speaking of created things, we look at number two, Jesus' unique relationship to the world. We're not going to study this in depth, but you start in verse 10 and you hear from Psalm 102 and Psalm 110. And we hear that uncreated Jesus created the world. He's going to outlast the world and he's going to conquer all his enemies in the world. That's extremely dense. I think sometimes when we think about angels, the very few times that we do think about them or talk about them or reflect on who they could possibly be, this image pops into our minds of these pristine, invulnerable beings that don't really change, right? I mean, angels look perfect. They don't have bad hair days. They have perfect teeth. They're just unchanging, pristine beings, but that's not really true because we are hearing from the Psalms that all of creation, whether it's in heaven or on earth or under the earth, whether it's a body or a principality or a power or an angel or a demon, every single inch of the created universe, seen and unseen, all of it gets swept up under the description of verse 11. They will all wear out like a garment. Everything you see and can't see that has been created will wear out. Creation winds down. Creation itself, it wears thin. Creation begins to feel aches and pains in places it didn't know it had. And it is only Jesus, according to Hebrews chapter 1, who is the same yesterday and today and forever. Creation will wear out. Jesus himself will remain. Well, finally, that sets us up to know that Jesus is God. Jesus has this relationship enthroned over the world to then explore what is his precise relationship with the angels? How does he then relate to these celestial beings? You've got some really incredible angel stories in the Old Testament. I mean, you've got some wild, hairy things that happen in the Old Testament with angels. When they show up, typically sparks begin to fly, right? You've got a scene in Genesis where two angels stroll into Sodom and they get attacked by the townspeople and they strike everyone blind, grab Lot and his family, and run out of the town before God rains fire and sulfur down from heaven. That's pretty hairy. You've got a scene in Daniel where Michael the archangel does hand-to-hand combat with a demon for 21 days. I mean, we're talking hardcore stuff here. I think one of my favorite angel stories in the Old Testament that is just so striking to me about the power of angels, it happens around the year 700 BC. Now, this is the time that Assyria is the world's superpower and Sennacherib is the king of Assyria and he is completely laying waste to the known world. His army marches in, they destroy nations, they destroy capitals, they bring cities down and they become enslaved to him and he attacks the the northern kingdom. Of course, Jerusalem, uh, Israel is separated into two kingdoms. He takes the northern kingdom, he marches into Judah in the southern kingdom, he comes to Jerusalem and he lays siege to the city of Jerusalem. 
And the king at that time, King Hezekiah, is absolutely terrified. He has no idea what's going to happen, but he knows that it's not going to be good because he can watch all these other nations that were stronger than him who have fallen to Sennacherib. Now, a prophet comes to Hezekiah and he says to him a most remarkable prophecy. He says, I tell you what, there will not be a single arrow that will fly in this city because God's going to deliver you. Now, I don't know if Hezekiah believed that, but he went to bed that night and all Jerusalem went to bed that night. And I promise you, none of them slept as the siege was happening outside of them. That night, an angel walks into the Assyrian camp and strikes down 185,000 soldiers. When Hezekiah gets up that morning and he and the people look out over the city walls, all they see is a camp of dead bodies and Sennacherib running back to Nineveh. Now you read something like that wherever you stand in your relationship to the Bible and it can kind of sound like a fanciful Bible tale, right? I mean, angels killing soldiers in a camp, but this is actually corroborated in history. There's no talk of angels in Sennacherib's telling, but you can read Sennacherib's version of the story. You can go to the British Museum today, which is in London. I've been there. I've seen it with my own eyes. There is a baked clay prism, which is how kings would have written out their history. And on it, uh, Sennacherib tells the story of his eight campaigns. I destroyed this person, destroyed that nation, brought this capital down, took these people as slaves. And then I got to Jerusalem and I laid siege to it. And this is what Sennacherib says. Curiously, the only city that's mentioned here that he wasn't able to take, he says, I pinned Hezekiah up like a caged bird. He mentions him, he mentions the city, and he mentions that he never made it inside of the city. And in fact, history tells us that Sennacherib never made a westward expansion after that again. It's a very curious corroboration with what we find in Isaiah and the testimony of Scripture. An angel striking down almost 200,000 soldiers. All of this, these stories of the Old Testament, they don't even begin to touch some of the descriptions in the New Testament that reveal these powerful beings that number in the thousands upon thousands, myriads upon myriads. It's wild to think that when we enter the new heavens and the new earth, there might be as many or more angels as there are people in the new heavens and the new earth to worship God forever. So it's no wonder that there's confusion when you see all of this power within this church about the nature and the relationship of angels with Jesus. In fact, angels are so powerful, so bright, so fearsome that there is confusion among angels as to the nature of angels. Satan himself was an angel and he himself went astray and led maybe as many as a third of all angels astray to make war with God and he was banished from heaven for it. Over and against this mountain of angelic power, the writer to the Hebrews says, verse 6, let all God's angels worship him. Verse 7, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. For all their stature, angels are but servants. Jesus alone is sitting at God's right hand. Angels are falling on their face to worship him and God enthroned forever. Jesus himself is sitting at God's right hand. Angels are standing by to do his bidding and to be sent out from him. Jesus 
alone is seated at God's right hand and angels are making war with God's enemy and cutting them down to footstool proportions. Angels are but servants of Jesus. Now, while Jesus has their attention, he's made them, he upholds them and all the universe by the word of his power. He gives them one more thing to do in verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? That is a very curious line in scripture. I've got about a gazillion questions. How is this going to work? What do angels actually do? Can I ask an angel for something? Can my angel beat up your angel? I mean, I want to know all about this angelic world that right now is interacting in the spiritual world on our behalf. But that's it. That's all we get. Just this one little morsel of angelology that doesn't even begin to satisfy our appetites. And I think there is a point to that sparsity of detail. Because if you and I go from here and we become enthralled with angels, we have absolutely missed the entire point of this passage. But if you and I will become enthralled with this kind of Jesus, the one who has laid the foundation of all of creation, the one who is enthroned with a scepter of righteousness, the one who alone does not change but is the same yesterday, today, and forever, if we will become enthralled with that kind of Jesus, his angels are at his disposal to make sure that you and I will inherit his salvation. Let's pray together. Let it be so, Lord Jesus. May this be so. We tremble in your presence. Even the angels themselves, who hold far more power than us, tremble in your presence. Give us a vast big vision of who you are and draw us to yourself, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.